All right. Hey, everybody. It is good to be back with you all here today, even though I'm not really here, right? We're all watching in our living rooms or whatever, but it's good to be back teaching and um, studying with you the book of Luke. Um, so we're going to continue in that series today. Um, happy Thanksgiving week coming up. Um, I hope you all get a few days off this week. Next week, we're actually going to do, uh, next Sunday, we're going to do a sermon about Thanksgiving. Um, actually, that I'm going to record as soon as I'm done recording this sermon. Um, and so uh, this week, though, we're going to keep going in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke. We're going to, f- um, we're, yeah, we're going to be in the end of chapter six today, uh, right there towards the end. And we're going to keep going in Jesus's Sermon on the Plain. Um, and so if you want to follow along in the Version app, that stuff like every week is there uh, on the website if you want to follow along and uh, take notes um, and all that stuff in the app. Um, so yeah, let me open this up in prayer. Lord, we thank you. Uh, like I, every week, I think I say, we thank you for your word. And we really mean that, Lord. And today we're going to talk about your word and what it means to study and um, to hear from you in your word. And so I just pray that as we... Um, as we read this passage and we study through this stuff today, that you would um, you would really help us to understand what it is that you have to say to us, your people. So we just pray this, um, pray this all in your name, Amen. So I've never actually read Alice in Wonderland. Um, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never even seen the movie. I have no idea what this is about. Um, but there's this quote that I've heard a few different times, and I want to use it from Alice in Wonderland. Um, it says one day, I don't know, Alice falls into a hole or something. I don't really know. I think this book's mostly about drugs, isn't it? Anyway, Alice falls into this hole and it says one day Alice came to a fork in the road and saw the, the Cheshire cat, I think so how you say that, uh, in a tree. Uh, which road do I take? She asks. Well, where do you want to go? Was his response. I don't know. Alice answered. Then the cat said, well, it doesn't matter. Right, I love that quote, even though I've never read the book. The idea is Alice comes to this fork in the road and she asks this cat in the tree, uh, which I think I've seen pictures of this cat. Anyway, um, which way should I go? And, you know, he's, well, where are you going? I don't know. So, well, it doesn't matter which way you go. That's how a lot of folks live their lives, right? But the thing is, our lives need roadmaps. Our lives need direction. Our eternity needs a roadmap. I'll give you another illustration. You guys know I hurt my back because I've been complaining about it nonstop now for like a month and a half. Um, and a few weeks ago, um, because I'm all doped up on muscle relaxers, um, I'm not allowed to drive very much when I'm on these, when I take a muscle relaxer, I'm not allowed to drive. And so I had this meeting in Oakland. So Melissa drove me over to Oakland and uh, we were driving there and the turn to to this place where neither of us had ever really been but we knew where it was. This turn was coming up and uh, the exit was coming and Melissa wasn't getting over to the exit. And I waited and I waited and at the very last second I said something and then we missed the turn off. We had to go to the next exit uh, and loop back around. Now, why did Melissa miss the turn off? Um, the reason was because she wasn't really following the maps. Uh, she wasn't reading the map. And so, um, you know, She's a pretty great wife, but in general, we try not to let her be the navigator in our car. Uh, she gets distracted, especially when she's talking to me. We get distracted talking, and then we miss our exits. happens all the time. But why did I wait so long to tell her to turn off? Because um, I thought this was the exit, but at the same time, I wasn't really sure. I didn't trust myself because uh, as much as I like to make fun of her and missing the exits, it happens to me too, and I don't really trust my sense of directions. What did we need? We needed to follow the GPS. We needed an accurate 
um, untarnished guide to tell us both who were kind of stupid and didn't know where we were going, where to go. Uh, We needed somebody else to tell us where to go. This is what Jesus is going to talk about next, but with life. How can we move our lives uh, towards the truth, right? What path should we humanity, uh, should we humans, right? What path should we be following uh, to, to, to go in the right direction? What is the right direction? What's the destination? So um, this whole sermon today has, is basically broken up into these three ideas. We can't trust, um, like with our own lives, we can't trust other fallen human beings because their outlook on life is tarnished. That's the first thing. The second thing is we also can't trust ourselves. I can't trust myself because I'm just as tarnished in my outlook as everybody else is. And the third thing is we can trust King Jesus. His word is the unfailing GPS for kingdom living. And so this whole sermon, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, what it looks like when you're inside the kingdom. Um, Today, he's going to, Jesus is going to continue that theme, telling us a few parables. So the first parable is about the blind leading the blind. So what it looks like when we trust other people with our eternity. So I'm going to read here Luke 6. There's actually, we're going to skip a few verses that we covered last week. We took some chunks and kind of reorganized, you know, reworked some things and how we're reading this. So um, if you notice, we're going to skip a few verses that we covered last time. So we're going to read here verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both, uh, will they not both fall into a pit? So now he's going to tell them parables. Parables are important parts of Jesus's teaching, especially in the book of Luke. The book of Luke is full of what we call the kingdom parable. So think of, um, you know, the prodigal son. And you know, there's um, there's all these different... Wait, let me turn my phone off. Sorry. All these different... Uh, well, let's pretend that didn't happen. Um, there's all these different parables um, that Jesus teaches throughout the book of Luke. Now, what is a parable? A parable is uh, just... Yeah, the para means like alongside. It's just a story with something alongside it. And that something that's alongside it is sort of a a secret hidden meaning. We're going to get into parables in a few weeks, a lot more detail. What is a parable? But to start out with, every time we come across a parable, there are a few important points that we need to follow about how to interpret these parables. So the first thing we have to do is identify the audience. Who is this parable written to? So for example, um, the main reason that most of us miss uh, or the reason most of us miss the main point, I'll say, of the prodigal son parable. We all think that parable is about the prodigal son, the son who runs away, and we'll get there in Luke chapter 15, so in like 20 years we'll get there. Um, but the main reason that we miss that parable is because we miss the audience. The audience there was Pharisees, which changes the whole meaning of that parable. Not that the prodigal son is not important, but the main point of that parable um, is probably not what you think it is. This, the parable is really about the older brother, not about the younger brother who runs away, because the audience changes that. The next thing we have to do is identify points of reference. So in a parable, there are things that sort of represent uh, other things in real life. And so what we have to do is decide what parts of this parable are a point of reference and what parts don't really matter. So take the... Um, uh, Good Samaritan parable, right? We have points of reference. There's the guys who pass him up on the road. If you know that story, there's the Samaritan um, uh, who helps him, right? Well, in that story, the donkey doesn't really represent anything. It's just, you know, the guy's horse or donkey or whatever. It's just a donkey that he uses to carry him. There's no point of, well, everybody needs to make sure you have a donkey in your life to help you when you need to help. That There's nothing like that, right? It's just a donkey. So we have to identify what's points of reference and what is just part of the story that's not super important. Uh, 
The third thing we have to remember is not to over, um, overstep those points of reference. We don't want to make, we don't want to push things to the extreme, right? These parables have meanings and we want to stick to what those meanings are. And that's the fourth point, right? We want to stick to the main point of interpreting a, in interpreting a parable. Parables generally, the prodigal son story is a little different because it has some nuance to it. But in general, parables kind of have just one big meaning. And we want to find that big meaning before we start thinking about the other stuff, right? Uh, we don't want to overcomplicate the parables, I guess. So now let's take this parable that Jesus just told us. Uh, the meaning is pretty obvious. It's a comical scene, right? Imagine two blind guys um, trying to jaywalk across Columbus Street uh, during the middle of a rush hour. What would happen? They'd get hit by a bus. So those are kind of, right, that's our that's our points of reference, right? Now the audience here, who's learning about this? Who is this? Who is Jesus talking to? Well, it's the people listening to this sermon. And if you remember that audience, it's mostly disciples and followers of Jesus, Right, and so the points of reference here are the that's the audience. Then we have the points of reference, which are the two blind people, representing um, fallen humans trying to find the truth, uh, trying to find the way to live into the kingdom on their own. Then we have the pit, right? They're going to fall into a pit. They're going to get hit by a bus. What what is that? That's uh, eternity. They're they're not going to make it into eternity. That's eternal damnation. This is as far as we can lead each other is into the judgment of God. And so what, what do we need then? What's the point? We need somebody that's not blind to help guide us. We need somebody outside of the situation. And Jesus now is standing here um, in the Sermon on the Plain, and he is claiming to be that teacher. He is the one who can show humanity the way. Look at verse 40. Uh, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Jesus is the great teacher. He's the one who knows the way. Um, from darkness, from blindness, right, into the light, uh, from damnation into uh, eternal happiness. And so when we try to um, move around on our own in the dark, we have absolutely no hope of surpassing uh, what somebody who can see and is living in the light knows. And Jesus is that person. But if we follow him, um, we can find the way because he is the one guiding us. Now, here's the harsh truth. Some of Jesus' disciples, even people who go to church and claim to be followers of Jesus and call him king, would rather walk around blind uh, than follow uh, the teachings of our king. And that's this next part. Look at verse 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck, uh, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Okay, so again, what's the point of references? We still have two guys who can't really see very well. Uh, these two blind guys still. It's, he's continuing the parable. And now he's talking about the speck in your own eye or the log in your own eye, right? Your own sin nature is blinding you while you're standing there with condemnation and judgment trying to help other, you know, trying to tell other people how to live when you don't even see your own blindness. And that's the main point. Part of our... Um, Part of our fallen and sinful human nature is that we are blind to our own sin while sin in other people's lives seems to be magnified. And so we see our own sin and we go, well, that's not really that bad. And then we see sin in other people's lives and we say, wow, that's way worse than me. And Jesus says that people that live like this are hypocrites. The word hypocrite just means an actor. 
somebody who pretends to be something they're not. You know, in the Greek, it was a Greek word, um, and uh, you know, in Greek plays, I think they wore masks over their face or something like that. And that, that's what that word means. Somebody who stands up and pretends to be something that they aren't really. And so he says, look, you're a hypocrite. You, you can't see the light, but you pretend to. So how can you, uh, how are you trying to help somebody else find the way, uh, into eternal life, into the kingdom of God, when you yourself can't even see it? Because you're blinded by your own sin. So that's the first parable, right? The two blind guys. Here's the second parable then. We're going to jump down a few verses. Um, he talks about the sand castle, right? The the houses and the sand uh, built on the foundation of sand. So um, let's see. We're going to jump down. Um, I'm going to flip the page here. Uh, verse 40. Where are we? 46. Um, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? Right, so the word Lord in Greek is the word kurios. It has a few different usages in Greek, and by the context, we have to figure out what it means. So um, it can mean husband is one way that this word is used a lot. Uh, it can mean master, as in like a slave owner, or it could just mean like we would use the word sir, like a respectful term, right? Um, now, in what sense is it used here? Well, not husband, obviously. I don't think that's what it means. So it's either the word sir, like a respectful word, or the word lord, as in master, probably makes more sense. And the, the idea is that either way, if you really think that Jesus is lord, then it makes a lot of sense that you, when he asks you to do something, you do it. You listen to him. You let him be the one who is guiding you. And look at the word here is actually used for rep is, uh, is repeated and repetition is used uh, to show emphasis in uh, the original biblical languages. So when Jesus says, Peter, Peter, you know, he, he's making a point or God says, I think one point, Abraham, Abraham, when, when it's used like this, it means like, dude, I really mean what I'm about to say. So why would you say, Lord, I really mean you're the Lord and then not do, uh, and then not do what he says to anybody in the ancient world, this would have been absolutely unheard of to, to be this kind of disobedient, because if he is the Lord, you need to obey. Um, remember, the context, though, of this sermon is important. The context of this entire sermon on the plane is not, how can I get into the kingdom? But it's now that I'm already in the kingdom, uh, what does the fruit in my life look like? How do, I, how do I live my life now that I'm a part of the kingdom? And a part of being a follower of King Jesus and being part of the kingdom of God is obedience. Not begrudging obedience, but joyful obedience. Um, imagine that you're a young basketball player for a minute. Although, uh, it might bring me to tears to talk about basketball. We just found out Clay tore his uh, Achilles tendon after tearing an ACL last year in the Warriors. Oh, I'm devastated. You guys, you guys, I'm devastated. Anyway, let's pretend that we can talk about basketball anyway. Pretend you're a young basketball player. And uh, you uh, are just kind of learning the game. Maybe you're in junior high or high school, something like that. And you win a contest. You get to go. Uh, you know, radio contest or whatever. I don't think they have radio anymore, but you know what I mean. Uh, you win a contest, you get to go to Steph Curry's house and play basketball with him for an afternoon on his private indoor court, something like that. And you get there and, you know, Steph's wife makes you lunch because she's the chef and food's amazing. And uh, you go outside and you're playing basketball in the afternoon and he's watching you shoot and he comes over and he says to you, the young basketball player, hey, can I give you a tip? Uh, when you're shooting, you're putting your elbows way out. You need to tuck, well, I'm lefty, but or I'm not a lefty, but you know, you need to tuck your elbow when you shoot. Um, and then you do it and it starts working. Now, when he says that to you, how are you going to respond uh, to that suggestion, right? To that advice, joyful obedience. This is Steph Curry, right? The greatest shooter 
uh, of all time. If you don't believe me, just type in Steph Curry highlights, pause the video, go watch some Steph Curry highlights on YouTube, come back and we'll finish the sermon, right? Because Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of all time. And when he tells you how to shoot, you you listen, you obey what Steph Curry has to tell you because you know that this is meant to help you and you're joyful in your obedience. That's how we're supposed to obey King Jesus. Not sort of this uh, angry, fine, I know Jesus is a buzzkill, but I really don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to obey. That's not the kind of obedience he's talking about here. He's talking about you understand that he really is the one who knows the way. He's the one, he's the GPS, right? He's the one uh, who knows what he's talking about. So, of course, we would want to obey him. All right, let's keep going. Verse, he says, I'll show you another parable, right? Uh, here in verse 47. So, the sandcastle parable. Um, let's see, I'm going to do, yeah, okay, 47 through 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words uh, and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug uh, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who uh, built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. All right, so let's identify now. There's another parable. Let's take a second and let's identify our points of reference. So first we have uh, the guy who built his house on the foundation of a rock, like the strong foundation. So when you think of a foundation, you know, it's the the, the sturdy part underneath the house that you're building on top of. So um, I'll put up a picture here of a great example of a strong foundation is over in um, uh, like the upper market Castro area, the San Francisco Mint. Um, I've never actually been inside the Mint, but I used to drive by it all the time. It's right by the Safeway over where we used to live. Um, and the best taqueria in the whole city is right across the street from that Safeway down from the Mint. Uh, just saying. See, what's good about it is they put the, the cheese on the tortilla and the whole thing on the grill, and then they put everything in it so the whole thing is hot and the cheese... Anyway, okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the San Francisco Mint is built on... Uh, one of the biggest, strongest looking foundations. It's a giant rock underneath uh, the San Francisco Mint. And so um, this person who builds on this foundation is somebody who hears the, the teacher's words, hears Jesus's words, and goes out and does them. Um, now think about what it takes to be this kind of a person. Uh, um, you look at all the, the options for the different foundations that you have in the world, and this person says, you know what? Jesus is the best option. Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ is where I'm going to build my life. It's, it's, the, the it's going to be the foundation of my life. So that's the first person. Um, the second point of reference is the second guy. The second guy builds his house with no foundation. So here, let's think of the Millennium Tower, who I, I never, I mean, I've read some about the Millennium Tower. I think Hunter Pence owned a place in the Millennium, or owns a place in the Millennium Tower. Joe Montana did too. Uh, you know, the the real greatest quarterback of all time. Sorry, Tom Brady. Um, anyway, so the Millennium Tower downtown, right next to the Salesforce Tower and uh, the, uh, you know, the bus hub, whatever it's called. If, I don't know. I'm blanking on the park. You know, the one with the park on top. I'm blanking on the name. Well, anyway, uh, apparently they didn't drill down far enough and anchor the building into bedrock. And so what happened was slowly this building, this skyscraper downtown started to tilt. And uh, everybody sued each other and taxpayers are on the hook for a bunch of this money. And, you know, it's a whole mess. And it's always, I, I get the Chronicle every day. And uh, it seems like constantly there's an article in there about who's suing who about the Millennium Tower downtown. Now, this is the person, right, who is in Jesus's story. They've just built their house on like sand. 
and there's no foundation. And so this person hears Jesus's words and just decides, you know what, I don't want to do that. Now, how does this happen? Well, he hears the word of Jesus. He, he, he hears a gospel story and he thinks, you know what, I could do better than that. Um, this is Adam and Eve, right? When we read about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they have the, the story of the uh, God's plan for their life. And God just says, look, I just don't want you to eat from this tree. And then the serpent comes along and says, well, that's God's plan, but I think we could do better without him. Right? I think your plan for your own life is going to be better. And they move God to the periphery. They move God outside the center of their lives. I can build a better foundation on the lying words of the enemy than I can on the words of God. And so, uh, like, um, you know, when, when people do this in our world, uh, look at some of the options, right? Some foundation builders, like house builders, they'll do it, uh, you know, on the foundations of uh, purposeful deceivers, right? So there are people out there who know they don't have the truth, and they're actively trying to get people to build foundations on something that they know is not the truth. So that's Satan in the garden. You know, there's a lot of cult leaders out there that absolutely know that what they're saying is wrong. And they don't live it out, but they expect everybody else to, you know, they do it for, per they abuse people for personal gain. Um, they're, these kind of people, they just know that they're liars and they know that what they're peddling is not true. Like Tommy Lasorda, the famous manager of the Dodgers, is always out there telling people to like the Dodgers. And we know that that's a lie from the pit of hell, right? Or you have guys like uh, L. Ron Hubbard, kind of a cult leader, um, who founded Scientology, and he was a science fiction writer, and he said, man, I'm not making enough money writing this sci-fi stuff, so I'm just going to invent a religion, and I'm going to get crazy rich. And it worked. It totally worked. Or we have politicians out there that know what they're peddling is garbage, and still they they have people build their whole lives on these political systems that ultimately will not fulfill them. So there's like the intentional deceivers out there. Then there's others who are well-intentioned, but pro but mistaken. Um, they want you to build a house on a good foundation, but they just don't really know how. So like, um, just two quick examples I thought of this are, um, <clears throat> you know, there's probably a lot of really nice Buddhist monks out there um, who are genuinely searching for the truth. They are not dishonest people at all. The problem is that the foundation of Buddhism, and this isn't a comparative religions class, but the, the the foundation of Buddhism doesn't hold up the way that the gospel does. Or the same thing with other religions. Like, um, you know, like a, um, uh, a friend of mine, Linda, was a missionary to a Muslim group and um, this Muslim people group in France. And, uh, you know, I met a few of these people and they're like the nicest, honest people that I'd ever met. And uh, the problem is that deep down underneath what they're, what they're building their foundation on um, the, the Islamic religion is not the truth. It's not the, the, the way into eternity, the way, you know, into the kingdom of God. And so they're asking people quite honestly to build on these, um, these false foundations, but whatever the reason is, and there's philosophical ones, there's idolatrous, you know, there's all these things that people in our world are building their lives on these foundations that are going to crumble, right? So we have the two guys with the false foundations, um, the next point of reference is the storm. What is the storm? Well, I think it's kind of a layered reference. And you could say either one of these two things. First is life is stormy. Um, literally, like people's houses get natural disasters come for people's you know, homes and it's terrible, right? You guys remember my mom's house burned down in a fire. That was an actual natural disaster. Hurricanes, we, we see those on TV all the time. Earthquakes. So, I mean, life is literally stormy. It's also life is hard, right? People die, loved ones. COVID, let's be real, has been terrible. Um, you know, it messed up everybody's life. Life, 
the storms, the metaphorical storms of life will hit. You'll get fired from your job, your spouse will leave you, whatever it is, right? So that's the one level, is that our actual life here on earth is hard. But the second level there is that nothing in this life that's stormy compares to the storm that's coming for um, for sinners uh, after death, the storm of God's judgment, because God is a God of justice, and every sin will be punished, either on the cross or um, at the final judgment. And I think that's Jesus' main point here, is eventually this storm is coming. And if your life is not built on his you know, words and his gospel, then that storm is, you know, if it's not on that foundation, then you have no chance of standing in that storm. But for kingdom people, right, our foundation is Jesus. When that storm of the final judgment comes, it will pass by. But for outsiders, people outside the kingdom, they're not going to stand a chance. Okay, so that's our passage then. So we have these three ideas flushed out. The first idea, like I said at the beginning, is Look, we can't trust other fallen human beings for this ultimate path and this ultimate truth because they're fallen and they're sinful, right? They're, they're blind. But we also can't trust ourselves. That's the second point. Because we're blind too. Our sin has not only ruined them, it's ruined us. It's ruined me. In my natural state, I have no idea what's going on. But the third point is that we can trust King Jesus. His words are uh, the unfailing GPS, right? His words are are the, um, the foundation on which we can actually build our lives. Now, here's the thing. This brings up a few questions as we talk about this. Um, the first question is this. How can you say that we're blind? How does Jesus say that people are blind when outside the kingdom of God, we see people reach truth all the time? And that's true. And um, next week, we're actually going to talk a lot more about what uh, what we call common grace. But here's an idea. Um, just because my kids know how to open a car door uh, doesn't mean I'm going to let them drive the car, get in the car and drive me home, right? They can do part of it. They can't do all of it. They don't know how the whole car works. And uh, the idea is that with common grace, God, um, God does allow fallen and sinful human beings to reach points of truth in certain areas, but we're not going to reach ultimate truth uh, without him, right? So uh, we need somebody outside of the system to step in and show, uh, to show us the whole picture. So that's the first question. The second question is, well, why do I need somebody else to tell me uh, what's what, right? Um, I need to, this is a, such a, a Western thing, right? I need to figure out my path. I need to figure out my truth for myself. It's not about the destination, like what you're saying here, John. It's about the journey. Okay, so let's get philosophical for a minute. Um, there's a guy named John Paul Sartre. I think it's actually like Sartre or something with the French accent. Here's what he said, that life is like, your life is like a blackboard, you know, chalkboard, um, and it's born blank. And your meaning and your identity comes from um, Right, what's written on that blackboard, uh, the blackboard of your life. But where does that come from? Now, he was a proponent of a ph uh, philosophy called existentialism. And what he says is that you're born with the blackboard, and then you spend your entire life yourself filling it up, erasing things that you don't like, uh, and making it yours until this blackboard sort of represents you as your truest self. And you choose your own path, you give your life your own meaning, disconnected from the people around you. And the worst thing, the worst sin in existentialism is not being true to yourself. And so I was just watching, 
Um, oh, Melissa and I have this terrible reality show that we like. It's called Married at First Sight, where these experts, these relationship experts, uh, meet a whole group of people and they pick people out of this group and they have them marry without ever meeting each other. And the idea behind this show is that marriage is work and uh, that there's no soulmates. There's just compatibility and whatever. Anyway. So we're watching this stupid reality show that we love. And in there, this one, this was just the other day, there was a conversation happening after I'd already written this sermon and I, and I was thinking about this. this. So this stuff is on the front of my mind. And somebody in the show was saying, you know, well, basically the conflict that you're in doesn't really matter. Uh, you, you have to be your truest self. And if this other person isn't helping you be your truest self, then you need to leave this relationship. That's like the most existentialist kind of thing that I've ever heard. Um, this philosophy that we have to be our truest self, we have to fill up our own blackboards, um, is why the Western world thinks the way that it does. This philosophy is what our Western world is built on, even if most people have no idea. It's like, um, you know, David Foster Wallace um, that quote where, you know, like that, uh, he says it's like asking a fish, how's the water today? Um, and then the fish says, what's water, right? Doesn't even know what water is. That's the Western world and existentialism. You walk around and you ask somebody on the street, what's existentialism? You know, how's the existentialism? They're going to say, well, what is that? Even though that's how they think. Our world is bathed in this philosophy from our sexual ethics to our politics to our basis for morality um, to this is where a lot of the pro-choice movement comes from. Most of this stuff that people believe comes from John Paul Sartre's view of humanity as this blank slate that you have to fill with your own meaning. Um, but uh, the gospel kind of takes the opposite path, isn't it? It says that, look, you're born with a blackboard. Sure, let's take Sartre's blackboard uh, illustration. But your blackboard is filled already with blasphemous thoughts and, and sin nature that says, God is not my Lord, I am. I'm the center of the universe. And then it also um, is, your blackboard is also broken into pieces, right? And so you can't even, you don't even get to write on it because you're so broken. And so what you need is somebody to come along and do, you need Jesus to come along and do a few things for you. First, he has to pick up the pieces of the blackboard and glue it back together, put it back together. Um, the second thing he has to do is erase all the garbage about how God is not your Lord, but your blackboard is covered in. And then the third thing Jesus has to do is he has to rewrite it with kingdom truth. I died for you. Yahweh is your Lord. You are a child of God. You have hope heading into eternity. And so um, so where um, do we uh, practically read, though, those kingdom truths, right? Where do we see the stuff that Jesus is filling up our blackboards for us? We don't fill our own blackboards like Sartre says. This is what Jesus does for us. Now, how does this happen? Uh, it happens in the scripture. Um, Augustine said this, in a certain place, in the gospel, the Lord says that the wise hearer of the word ought to be like a man who, wishing to build, uh, digs rather deeply until he comes to bedrock. Uh, there, without anxiety, he establishes uh, what he builds against uh, the onrush. Wait, did I read that right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. He establishes what he builds against the onrush of a flood, so that when it comes, uh, rather it may be pushed back um, by the, I don't know how to say this word, solidity? of the, you know, the solidness of the building, uh, then, uh, well, I can't even read. I, 
Okay, here's the thing. I have this new way that I'm doing sermons, you know, in this new system, and I just realized, actually, I realized it last week and I forgot to fix it for this week, that the, the quotes that I'm supposed to read are way too small on my iPad, which is way behind uh, behind my um, my camera here. So I'm not an idiot. I'm just blind. Anyway, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, let me read this sentence again. Let's jump here. Let us consider the scripture. This is the important part. Let us consider the scripture of God as being a field where we want to build something. Let us not be lazy or content uh, with the surface. Let us dig more deeply until we come to rock, and that rock is Christ. So anyway, in my can't even read uh, quote there, uh, uh, in my stupidity, I think the idea got through is, do you see what he's saying? Jesus is the rock that we build our lives on and his words and his teachings are found in scripture. So when uh, Sartre says that you're a blank slate that you need to fill up on your own, Jesus comes along and says, no, you're a broken slate filled with garbage and you need me to put it back together, erase it, and then fill it with the words of scripture. But here's the deal. In our culture, Asking people to fill their lives with scripture and to to build their lives on top of scripture, um, well, it brings up a bunch of questions and it automatically gets us called names like fundamentalist and Bible thumper and stuff like this. So let's talk for a minute now, ending, let's... Let's talk about some of these questions that people have about the Bible. If you're watching this, maybe you have some of these questions. And one of the things I think that's important is we don't want to just push these questions off to the side and pretend like they're not real. These are real questions that people really struggle with and have to really think through so that they can build their lives on the scripture. So the first question is this, isn't the scripture tainted because it was written by people? So you're telling us you can't trust people. Everybody's blind, but then you're telling us to build your lives on something that was written by people. Don't you see that that's a contradiction? Okay, so let's in in let's let's answer the this objection quickly and what i'm also going to do to some of this stuff here in um, the website there is I'm going to link to a few articles and I'm going to put a few recommendations for some books. So I'm going to rapid fire through some of these questions that should be entire sermon series on their own and our whole books by themselves. So if any of these really catch your eye, I want you to go read some of these resources that I'm going to link to. But here's the thing. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed uh, out by God. Now, when it says breathed out by God, it means that um, the words of scripture are the very words of God. We, um, uh, I'll read to you from the EFCA statement of faith. So our denomination has a 10 point statement of faith. It says this, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both the old and new testaments through the words of human authors. So God spoke through human authors as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, to be obeyed in all that it requires, and to be trusted in all that it promises. So like I said, I'll link to some more articles that kind of explain that more. But basically, the idea of inspiration uh, has two components to it. The first is, yes, God used real human authors to write. And when we read scriptures, the real human authors' personalities shine through. So Paul's Greek is different than Peter's Greek, is different than Luke's Greek. Luke uses certain words a lot. Um, John uses the word, um, is it immediately? That he's constantly, oh no, that's Mark. Immediately this, immediately that, right? So their personalities shine too, and this as the styles are evident. But at the same time, God guided those authors so that when we read their words, 
Uh, we're reading the words of God. Now, that seems a little too easy of an answer, right? Oh, God inspired the scriptures. Great. Well, okay, that doesn't really answer my question. But here's the thing. Let's start with the idea of creation. If we're talking about God and we believe that there is a God who created the world, if we believe that he has broken into his creation, right, that he is a part, an active part of his creation, and we'll talk about that a bunch next week in the Thanksgiving sermon, um, if there is a creator, would it be very hard for the one who spoke the entire universe into existence to inspire writers uh, to write the words that he wants his people to know? It's really not that hard. Um, it's like, you know, um, I don't know, golf, right? If you, if you, I don't watch golf, but I assume some people do. Now, uh, the Masters just happened, and I was watching the Masters, and there was this guy, I think it was in a practice shot, anyway, it, during a practice round of the Masters, and he skipped a ball, he hit it, and he skipped it across the the pond. It bounced a few times up onto the green, and then I think it went into the cup. Now, that's a pretty impressive shot. He probably can't do it every time. But, I mean, this guy you can imagine is a legitimate real golfer. Now, imagine you've seen him do that a few times. Would you question if he could make like a one-foot putt? No, right? You've seen him do the big thing, so him doing the little thing is, is easy. It makes sense. That's this. If God created the entire universe, and if that's what we believe, if there is a God out there who is a creator, then the inspiration is like a really small thing in comparison to creation. All right, so that's the first thing. Here's the second idea. Isn't scripture tainted um, because it's been changed over time um, and abused and, um, you know, there's different people who had different agendas and what's really scripture and all this. Um, the illustration that people always give with this objection is that the Bible is like the game of telephone. And if you've ever played the game of telephone, or if you did when you were a kid, the game of telephone works like this. Everybody sits in a circle or a line or whatever. And one person whispers in somebody's ear, you know, a phrase. And then that person whispers into the next ear, whispers. And by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's something completely different. Um, you know, I love the Simpsons episode where they're, they're doing this. And at the end, uh, it's like part of the phrase. And then Bart says, you know, Skinner says he won't back down purple monkey dishwasher, right? It changed to purple monkey dishwasher by the end of it. Now that's what people say. The Bible has happened to the Bible. The Bible's changed. It's not, uh, what it originally was. Well, okay. There's a lot of problems with that. Here's the first problem. Tele uh, telephone, the game telephone, uh, is one line of people whispering, Okay. And, you know, speaking into their ears. So all you hear is the end. Okay. So <clears throat> with the scriptures, though, it's different. The scriptures are the best attested to um, ancient book in history. And it's not even close. There's a lot of manuscripts. So it's not one line. It's literally thousands of lines. And in telephone, you don't get to go ask each person uh, what they said. You just hear the last person. But with the Bible, we get to go back and look at these bunch of different lines, and then we get to look at uh, the copies back, 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 back. So we don't have the original person, but we have ones right after and then leading up. So there's all these different lines. And there's people called textual critics. And what these guys do is um, they're, they're you know Greek and Hebrew scholars, and they go and they compare the different lines and the different you know, time periods, and with all of that information, right, 99.99 something percent, we can say with accuracy, this is what the original manuscript said. We have multiple lines, we have tons of manuscripts, and we have multiple copies over a lot of years, right? So um, there's, a, there's a movie that you can Google, it's on Faith Life TV called Fragments of Truth. I'll link to that at the bottom somewhere. 
Um, I think you got to buy it. I don't know. But anyway, if you're really interested in how this works, that's a great movie. So here's the third objection then. So that's the second one. Here's the third one. Isn't scripture tainted because it's full of mistakes? Right? Everybody knows the Bible's full of mistakes. Now, my question whenever somebody says this, and I've had people say this to me in conversations, you know, I don't really, you have this big emphasis on teaching the Bible and all this, but, you know, it's full of mistakes. Well, I always say, well, what mistakes? What contradictions? You know, I've got a Bible right here. Show me the contradictions. And I've never really had anybody open it up and say, well, here it is. Part of it is just they don't know. But here's the thing. There are, are sections in the Bible that appear to contradict each other. The, there is an answer to this in two parts. Most of what people call mistakes in the Bible are verses taken out of context. right? So um, when you take one verse without reading the whole thing or the flow of the Bible, you can see these kind of mistakes that are, disappear very easily. The second kind of mistake that I see a lot is that people don't understand that the Bible was written in the style of the times, not with modern mathematical precision like we write things today. So one example is, back in the day, language did not need to be as precise. There are parts, there, there are big parts of the Bible that are like this where they use round numbers, that sort of thing. You know, there were 10,000 troops. Were there exactly 10,000 troops? You know, whatever. Okay, so another another place where this shows up is like, um, there's a section in the book of First Samuel where um, it says that they killed all of the Amalekites and then jump forward like two chapters and there's a bunch of Amalekites and they're fighting the Israelites. Well, didn't you just say that they killed all of the Amalekites? Well, the Bible was written in the period uh, and the style of the times. And in those times, it was common to use exaggerated language to describe war. It was They used phrases uh, like how we say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. They say, we killed all the Amalekites, even though there's they didn't really kill all of the Amalekites. It's, it, it wasn't written with mathematical scientific precision. Precision. Um, and so if this is something that you're struggling with, I'd encourage you to go look up, get a book of Bible contradictions. Um, the late, great R.C. Sproul has a story that he tells of um, where he had a guy who had this objection. So he just said, okay, well, let's meet for coffee. I don't remember the exact story, but it was something like, let's meet for coffee every week and talk about each contradiction uh, until we're done, you know? And so every week, R.C. Sproul met with this guy for quite a while and they talked about it. Um, and at the end of their conversations, this guy... Uh, surrendered his life to Christ and became a believer um, because literally R.C. Sprawl, one of the smartest guys in the world, just demolished every every one of these contradictions and talked about all of them one by one. And that's a lot of what we see in a book of contradictions. Um, I've been studying scripture pretty consistently now for about 20 years. I read the whole Bible. I read it a couple of times a year all the way through. Um, I've read, one time I read the Bible in three weeks, if you guys remember. I don't really recommend that. That was reading the Bible for five hours a day for, I mean, it was, it was quite an undertaking. It was really good, but it was hard. Anyway, um, I've taught probably 20 or more books like I'm doing here, verse by verse, all the way through. I still have not come across anything that makes me stop and go, whoa, what is this blatant contradiction? Okay. All right. Here's the fourth objection. Isn't scripture tainted because it's so outdated, right? We're talking about rules of how to uh, manage slavery and all, you know, all this stuff. Okay. Here's uh, from the book of Hebrews. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God's word is the story of redemption. And it's had an impact now uh, on, well, Western civilization, you know, all over the world for thousands of years. The earliest book, uh, Job, was probably the first book of the Bible written. 
uh, was written in the time of a nomadic tribal people. Um, the last book written was Revelation, thousands of years later, was written to a group of people in the Roman Empire, the sophisticated Roman Empire. Now, the Bible itself was not written to any one specific culture. It was written to multiple people groups over thousands of years. And the Bible crosses cultures. You see, this was a huge mistake that the British made um, with their British Empire, which I know all about now because I'm watching that TV show, The Crown. Again, I've seen it through, but anyway. Um, is that you can't really follow Jesus unless you act British as well. right? That was a big part of their thing, and we've talked about this before. But the gospel moves... Uh, moves into cultures and challenges the idol <clears throat> sorry the idols of those cultures but it affirms other parts of those cultures and so that's why there's no center of christianity geographically unlike buddhism who has a center in the east or islam has a center in the, the middle east or hinduism in india the cult the center geographic center of christianity has shifted it started in uh, the middle east it moved at parts of it moved to Africa, parts of it moved into the Western world where it was kind of centered for a long time. Um, then kind of America became a big center of Christianity, uh, then South America. And now the majority of Christians live in either Africa, China or India, three very different parts of the world. And so to say that Christianity or to say the Bible has no impact on my culture. Sorry is to not really understand what the Bible is and what it has done in history. All right, the fifth objection then is this. Isn't scripture tainted because it's incomplete, right? So the, the Bible doesn't tell us about science. It doesn't tell us about geography. You know, there's all this stuff, right, that's not in the Bible. So how can we trust it to be our ultimate truth? Well, the answer to this is the Bible is not Wikipedia. Nowhere does it claim to be exhaustive knowledge. But what the Bible does claim is that there is enough in here about the story of redemption, about the gospel. Everything that God wants his people to know about how to um, how he has intervened in history and how to come back into the kingdom is in this book. So we call this the sufficiency of scripture. There's enough in here um, to be brought back into the fold and to be um, to be redeemed by the Lord. The sixth objection is, isn't scripture tainted because nobody can agree on what it means? Right? There's this scholar over here says one thing, this scholar over here says another, and they write books and they argue. Um, we, call, we talk about this, we talk about the clarity of scripture. Um, so one theologian said this, the clarity of scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that all its teachings are, be to, are uh, able to be understood by all, um, who will read it, seeking God's help, um, and being willing to, uh, sorry, and being willing to follow it. So there are some hard parts of the Bible. There are some parts where scholars and pastors disagree. When I'm teaching through the Bible, a lot of times what I'll say is, "Well, this guy believes this. This guy believes this. This is kind of how it changes the passage." Here's maybe what I think. But the basic gospel story is plain as day. Um, Augustine again said this, he was talking specifically about the gospel of John, but it's a good quote just to talk about the whole Bible, is that the gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. And I love that. So Bible scholars and pastors and people who've dedicated their whole lives to scripture can go deeper and deeper and deeper every day. And at the same time, anyone can approach the Bible for the very first time and get the basics down. And this is why in almost every sermon, right, I talk about the gospel story arc of creation and fall, redemption and restoration, because that's the basic point of the Bible 
and then we get into the more deep stuff. And so, um, just if you're thinking about, well, the Bible is so hard to understand when I read it. Let me give you a bit of encouragement here. We have three amazing helps for understanding the scripture in our day and age. The first is this. We have tools, we have the internet, and we have this amazing stuff, right? Martin Luther once trapped in a castle in hiding. I remember reading something once where he was like, oh man, if I only had a Greek dictionary, you know, a lexicon. He was translating the Bible into German. I'd kill for a lexicon. Well, you know, I have a hundred of them on my phone. You can get one on tons of different websites. We have all these tools and stuff that we have access to, commentaries, all that. Um, we have like the Bible Project videos, which I would highly recommend if you're trying to learn scripture, especially for the first time. There's another channel I've talked about called the 10-Minute Bible Hour. So the first thing, we have all these amazing tools. The second thing we have is the church community. So there's contemporary leaders like me who stand here teaching the Bible, and our main job is to help you understand scripture so that you can know God better. There's other books, other teachers that are around, uh, you know, writing stuff now. But then there's also 2,000 years of history that people have been studying this book for a really long time. So we have uh, the tools, we have teachers. The third thing and the most important thing that we have to understand Scripture, and this is the key, is we have the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things... Sorry, all the things and bring uh, to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One of the biggest mistakes that folks make when studying the Bible, reading the Bible, is that they try to do it on their own. They try to rely just on tools and teachers and whatever, and I'm just going to do this by myself, and I'm going to sit at home, especially during COVID, and you know, I'm going to just sit here and study my Bible, whatever. The most important step to studying the scriptures is to do so prayerfully. There's, it's the difference between understanding the story of the gospel, understanding God's word, the teaching of Jesus in your head, versus understanding it in your heart. And but, when the Bible talks about heart, it means kind of your whole being, not just your emotions, not just your feelings. The Holy Spirit is what makes the difference there. And so if you read the Bible with the prayerful heart, asking God to genuinely show you what to do about it, that's when you're building your house on that foundation. And so in this sermon, we kind of have these two ideas that we've been talking about. We've been sort of mixing these metaphors, right? We have the foundation and we have the GPS map and the path, but it's basically the same idea. Where are you headed? What's the big idea that you're building your life on? What's your foundation? Really, really deep down, what is it that's holding you up? What's guiding and directing your life? I hope that... Um, I hope that you spend some time really, really thinking about this. Don't wait until... Uh, don't wait until your deathbed. Don't wait until you're old and you think, oh, um, you know, I'll have time to figure that out later. Um, because someday your life is going to be over. And uh, the storm of God's righteous judgment is going to come and it's going to, to hit your house. And if the house is built on anything other than King Jesus, any other foundation is going to wash away. Um, but before that happens, the teaching of King Jesus the teaching that he is offering all of us is this foundation that will stand the storms not only of this life, but of the life to come, right? He died to build that foundation for us. And he tells us about it in his words. Supernaturally, he inspired these authors. He preserved these books so that we can have access to him. Uh, he sends his Holy Spirit to help us understand, uh, not just in our heads, but with our whole hearts, with our whole lives, so let me give this challenge then to anyone who's watching this and is not a follower of King Jesus. Look, I'm glad you're watching. I'm glad you're thinking about faith and you're thinking about your life. But here's, here's the big question. Is your life on some kind of an autopilot? 
How did you come to believe whatever it is that you believe? How confident are you in your foundation? So let's talk again about John Paul Sartre. Here's a man who lived his whole life with one worldview, atheist existentialism. He, he led the movement. He's literally the guy behind this movement. He transformed the Western world more than almost anybody in the 20th century. Um, but before he died, after years of being a philosopher and building his own worldview, he realized that his house was built on sand. He realized that his directions were going the wrong way. Right towards the end of his life, he did an interview in a French magazine. And here's a quote from that interview. He said, I do not feel that I am the product of chance, a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected, prepared, prefigured, in short, a being whom only a creator could put here. And this idea of a creating hand refers to God. So our whole Western world, our whole Western philosophy of existentialism was put together by a guy who lived his life and at the end looked at his life and his philosophy and said, this is a foundation of sand. This is a foundation that is going to crumble. And so my challenge uh, to anyone out there watching this who has a house built on something other than Jesus, the words of King Jesus and the truth of King Jesus, be really introspective. Uh, really think about why it is that you believe what you believe. Let me give you two book recommendations, or, or I guess three book recommendations. So there's a really short and kind of easy book. Uh, it's by a guy named John Frame. It's called Christianity Considered. Um, this is a really fantastic book. Tim Keller wrote a series that's similar. There's two books. It's called Making Sense of God and the Reason for God. Those two books really get into the philosophical foundations of Christianity and answering objections. There's an older book, too, that I really love called... Um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So if you're watching this and you're not a believer, grab one of those books, email me, I'll mail you one of these books. Um, you know, just spend time thinking about why it is you believe what you believe. Now, talking to the people who are followers of King Jesus, uh, here's what I want you to do. Read those same books um, to help you continue to build your own foundation, but also read them so that you can be better equipped to help the people around you. Remember the context of last week's sermon. We talked about love and loving our enemies, loving our neighbors. We've been talking about a lot. We want to be really good listeners, um, and we have to be really good at understanding our neighbors. Why is it that they believe what they believe? Right? How did they come to this belief? What in their life led them to this point? How can I help them uh, consider their foundation, right? We have to be gentle, loving, kind, and respectful um, in the way that we help the people around us process the things of faith, process the things of eternity. That's the kind of church that we want to be, that's confident in our own foundations, but is also gentle and loving as we help the people around us consider theirs. So now let's... Um, Let's take a minute and let's pray for our neighbors. Let's pray for uh, the folks around us. So, Lord, that is what we pray, that you would help us um, to reach out and to love the people around us so that they can uh, consider their foundation, so that they can build their foundations on the truth of your word and the gospel story that we find in it. Um, Lord, when we pray and we read our Bibles, we just pray that you would help us to hear from you and not just to learn... Um, interesting facts about first century Judaism or 
Greek words or whatever, but that you would really help us to see your heart in these words. And we just pray, Lord, that you would use the Bible, use this book to transform us each individually and transform us as a church. So we just ask for your blessing. We thank you and we love you. Amen.